it is a great opportunity to be with you this morning. I'm afraid with all this technology that somewhere along the line, I know I'm not going to get something right, but if I messed up with that, I uh, appreciate your patience. I do uh, am thankful to have the opportunity to be with you today. appreciate Phil uh, Barnes extending the invitation along with the elders to come and be with you. I rejoice in the work that you're doing here down uh, here in Franklin. appreciate the work that Edwin's doing with his wife, Marita. And I, too, keep Steve in my prayers. I actually worked with him some in Birmingham years ago, and I certainly pray for his recovery, that God will meet his needs. We do know several people here. It's always good to uh, see some of you. don't know a lot of you, but we are here uh, not just to reminisce, but we're here to honor and praise our great and holy God in heaven. That's our purpose of coming together this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, I would encourage you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. That is going to be the text of my lesson this morning. I do, and I don't do enough of it, but I do try to preach what I call expository lessons more often, where I just take a text of Scripture and try to mine the Scriptures and make some applications for all of us. And uh, again, I don't probably do that as much as I ought to, but there's so much value in doing that. But basically, if we go back to this text this morning, uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is speaking to God's people in the context of really about 100 years before Judah went into Babylonian, excuse me, Babylonian captivity, God spoke to Isaiah the prophet to provide the comfort and assurance and hope that his people would need. And Isaiah does this by showing how incomparably great God is in comparison to everything in creation, to idols, to kings, to rulers, and to nations. And he reminds us, that his being is his bond, and he will care for and deliver his people. And the pain and the destruction of their captivity, I think, along with the destruction of the city and the temple, would cause many of God's people, the Israelites, to doubt God's goodness and maybe his ability and power to rescue them. They're in ruins. They will be in ruins. This chapter in Isaiah chapter 40 answers all those doubts, that God is great beyond all comparison and because of that, it gives all of us, including the Israelites, the greatest assurance possible that God is going to care for and take care of us. So, and so this morning I want to talk with you about what I have titled The Incomparable Greatness of God. And when life gets too stressed for us, we have the strain and the trial, the temptation and difficulties of life. We need to be reminded of who God is, how awesome he is, and what Isaiah chapter 40 is all about. It's showing us, and what I'm going to do in this lesson this morning, Lord willing, is to, to show us the picture of how great and how awesome and how, how holy God really is. And, of course, in our need to trust him uh, uh, more so than we do. And as much as we study Scripture, we look at, uh, at pictures of God in Scripture, and we see his power, and yet we don't trust him. And I don't trust him like I ought to. Maybe you don't as well. But Isaiah chapter 40 gives us a picture that should leave an, an impression in our mind of who God is and how great he is. And I've got five points that I want to talk about with you this morning as, as we go through this lesson uh, in trying to keep some continuity to that. And again, each really the four points deal with God's greatness, and then one point is going to deal with some lessons to learn from that. The first lesson I want us to see as we look at Isaiah chapter 40 is that Isaiah is making a, a comparison uh, between God's greatness uh, and his creation. And basically, in verses 12 through 14, I believe I'll get that on the screen there, 
as the first chapter, or the, the first few verses of Isaiah begin, it's talking about the comfort that God's going to give his people. And what he wants to do through Isaiah, that is what God wants to do through Isaiah, is assure the people that he has the power and the strength and the wisdom and the compassion to help his people who are going to face dire circumstances. And so that's what this chapter is all about, the comfort for God's people. He's going to lead them. He's going to shepherd them uh, and, and ultimately heal them and, and bring them back to uh, their land. But in these verses, Isaiah is declaring that God is infinitely greater than and more glorious than his creation, which is impressive. In fact, if you look, we'll look at those verses in just a second. But there's five areas of creation that, that stress this point. He's going to talk about the oceans and the seas, which includes the... Uh, all the waters of the earth. He's going to talk about the heavens, which includes the sun, the moon, the stars. He's going to talk about the dust of the earth, the sand, the dust, all of that, everything on the earth. He's going to talk about the mountains, and he's going to talk also about the hills. And so he's going to, we're going to go through this in just a couple of minutes and then proceed to the rest of this section of Isaiah chapter, chapter 40, verses 12 down near, uh, nearly to the end of the chapter there. We'll, we'll get there. But the first point I want you to uh, see here, let's uh, look at verse 12. Is Isaiah is uh, trying to uh, uh, give some comfort to God's people and move what's going to happen. And in talking about God's power to take care of his people, he raises the question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counsel has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Let's pass verse 12. But the, again, it, these are questions for us to consider uh, and think about. And so oftentimes we read scripture, we don't make, maybe break that down and make these lessons real. But God is great, and we have to see that on a daily basis. And... He raises the question over here, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Can you imagine how much water there is on the face of the earth? All the lakes, all the oceans, all the rivers, all the streams, all the seas. Can you possibly measure how much water there is? It says here in this text that God measures and can hold all of the water on earth in the palm of his hand. That's awesome. He is awesome. And, and it should increase our trust in him. And again, it's something that we just take for granted. So I have to assume that one of God's hands is four or five times bigger than its entire world. Uh, who else can, can measure and hold all of the water on earth? Nobody can. Uh, there's a song that came out, I guess it must have been in the 60s and 70s, I don't remember. Uh, it says that he's got the whole world in his hand. He really does. He's got the little bitty baby in his hand. He's got the wind and the rain in his hand. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. Think about it. God can hold all of the water on earth in the palm of his hand. And again, it should just remind us of how great and how powerful and how awesome he is. Again, look at this next illustration. He said next to verse 12, Who has marked off the heavens by a span? Again, we read that, and, it's, and even though this is a New American Standard Version, it's still not as meaningful to us. Who, who has marked off the heavens? Who has measured the heavens by the span? Do you know how vast the heavens are? I don't know. I've spent some time in Japan, the Philippines, and all around the world. 
But I can't imagine how vast the heavens are. I can look at the, the, uh, the sky and, and try to imagine that. But it says here in this verse that God, God can not only measure the vast universe, he does it between his pinky and his big thumb. He said, who has marked off the heavens by the span? I think he's talking about the span of his hand. God can measure one end of the universe with his thumb and reach the other end of the universe with his pinky. He's a big, he's an awesome God. We sometimes forget that when trials and temptations and burdens and stress and strain overwhelm us. I work, in addition to preaching with the Broadmoor Church, work in sales and remodeling and home improvement, that kind of thing. I'll get some tape measures, and some of those are 25 feet, some of those are 30 feet, some are 50 feet. The one that's a 100-foot tape measure, and I've got a measuring reel that measures up to about 1,000 feet. And that seems big to me. But God can measure the entire universe, the solar system, between his pinky and his thumb. Again, it's a reminder of how great and how powerful and how awesome he is. Again, the next illustration, he says, And who has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? Again, these are uh, figures used to make us think about God's power. When it says that uh, he has measured or calculated the dust of the earth, that means that God can measure how much dirt is on the face of the earth and how much dust is there, how many grains of sand are on the seashore. Sometimes my wife does some cooking and my daughter does some cooking. They'll take out a little cup for measuring flour or sugar or something like that, and they put it in there. Can you imagine for just a moment going to your backyard and measuring how much dirt is in just your backyard? And right now I get a lot of it because the grass is all burned up. But you can't even measure how much dirt is in your backyard. I, I, and if you dug down as deep as you could, it says that God can measure and calculate how much dirt is on the face of the earth. That's powerful. In fact, when God gave the promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him and multiply him and, and give him descendants, he said, Abraham, go ahead and count the sands of the seashore and see if you can count all of them. He said, you can't do it. And Abraham could not do that. And so again, it's a reminder of, of how great and how powerful God really is. Again, another illustration from verse 12. I'm spending more time on verse 12 than I will on the, the remaining points here. Again, the question is, who has weighed the mountains in a balance? Think about that. Who has weighed the mountains in a balance? Maybe sometime growing up you weighed things. You took a bale of hay and you weighed it. I work, again, with building products. And you take a, 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 roll, a roll of gutter coil. It's pretty heavy. It takes a forklift to lift it up. That's pretty heavy. Anybody ever weighed a mountain? No. In fact, in a couple more weeks, my family and I are going to plan to go to the Smoky Mountains, and climb Mount Lacoste, about 6,500 feet. And of all the times I've ever been, I've never seen anybody weigh the mountain. God can not only weigh the mountain, he weighs all the mountains. All the mountains on the face of the earth, God can weigh in a scale. Brethren, our God is awesome. And we need to trust him more. I need to trust him more. Again, that's what Isaiah is telling to these people who are in dire straits. Who has weighed the mountains in the valley? God has. No one else. There's no one that's ever done that. But God can weigh the mountains in a balance. And again, the other illustration, verse 12, and he said, Who has weighed the hills in a pair of scales? Again, the hills are obviously smaller in size than a mountain, but God still knows even the smallest hills, even the smallest grain of sand. And much like a pharmacist can measure the tiny drugs of delicate scale, God measures and knows and can, can weigh everything. And again, these images extol God's incomparable greatness 
and uh, they stagger our imagination as we think about that. So that's what we see here uh, in this first section. Isaiah is trying to show us God's greatness in comparison to his creation. Verses 13 and 14, just as we move along there, uh, he's raising the questions. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? From time to time, we need counseling, don't we? We need advice. I need it. You need it. We all need counseling from time to time. Who was God's counselor when he fabricated the world and engineered it and designed it and to work so efficiently? Who was God's counselor? Nobody. He didn't need a counselor. We need help from time to time, but he um, did not need that because he is incomparable in his greatness, his wisdom, his power, and his knowledge. And so when you look at Scripture in the Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the picture of the 11 or the uh, living, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, this is what they say to God and to Jesus Christ. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Uh, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. That's exactly right. So the first lesson that Isaiah is trying to communicate to God's people who are going to be facing some difficult times is that in comparison to God's creation, that God is it, it, infinitely wiser and, and more powerful than even his creation, which is quite powerful. Let's skip there for a second. Secondly, I want you to go back to the text with me as we continue to look at God's incomparable greatness and understand that God is greater than, greater than and infinitely more powerful than any nation in history. Notice there in verse 15, uh, Isaiah continues, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So in comparison to all of the nations of the earth, God is greater and more powerful, uh, infinitely wise and holy, and he is worthy of all praise because of that. And so again, what, why, why does Isaiah use this comparison? Why does he talk about the nations? Because the nations seem so powerful. Uh, Babylon seems invincible, but it was not invincible. Babylon could not stand up to God. And sooner or later, Babylon fell like every nation has done throughout history. And in comparison to God's greatness, even the powerful nations, uh, Isaiah says, are like a drop in a bucket. And that's, that's an important lesson for us to learn there. Verse 16, he says uh, that even Lebanon isn't enough to burn, nor is beast enough to offer burn off. And what's he saying there? If you took all of the wood in Lebanon, Lebanon, Lebanon was an impressive place had all kinds of cedar trees and big, impressive trees. If you took all of the trees in this impressive place of Lebanon, biblical Lebanon, and took all the animals there, every single one of them, and offered them as a burnt offering to God, it would be totally inadequate to, to, uh, to worship God in that fashion. It would, it, would, it, uh, it would be entirely inadequate. And again, it's a reminder that all of the greatest nations throughout history, Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, as great as they were, don't compare in power and in wisdom to God's greatness. Are any of those nations still standing? No, they're all gone. And again, even though Babylon was powerful and oppressive against God's people, Isaiah is telling his people that God is more powerful and he's going to deliver his people from captivity and restore them to himself. 
So again, second lesson there is that the greatest nations, even the greatest nations can't compare with God's glory and his power. The third uh, illustration that Isaiah uses to communicate this idea of God's incomparable greatness has to do with idols or idolatry. Again, he's telling us that God is infinitely greater than, wiser than, and more powerful than any idols. You and I don't seem to be too impressed with uh, uh, typical pictures of idolatry, but people throughout history have always attributed to idols power and strength and, and, and wisdom of that nature. Again, notice what he says over here in Isaiah chapter 40. and verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? This is really the theme of Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you liken God, Israel? And you've worshipped idols, and you've done all those things, and Judas and guilty of that. Who are you going to compare God with? And the answer is no one. You can't compare God to anyone. He says in verse uh, 19, As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith placed it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He, set, he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will totter. And so, again, you have this picture over here that God is so incomparable, and idols that are made by men's hands are, are so pitiful in comparison to the power and the greatness and the wisdom of God. Again, if you look at verse 21, there are some rhetorical questions there. Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What's Isaiah? What's God telling his people through Isaiah? That Israel's history has been laced with idolatry, and over and over again, God warned them about the sin of idolatry. They they were guilty of idol worship, and they didn't seem to learn that lesson, that idols don't have any power. And I think the, the uh, absurdity of this picture is seen in the fact that man can't create this, the gold, that can't, we can't create the silver, we can't, fashion, we can't even make the tree that we fashion into some type of idol. And all of these materials have been made by God, a powerful and wise God. And here we have mankind who has intelligence who's been made in God's own image and worshiping these dumb and lifeless idols. And again... Sometimes we think that we're removed from that, but Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 5 that idolatry is still prevalent today. He said, this, he said, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so again, the lesson for us, brethren, Isaiah reminds us that in contrast to the dead and lifeless and powerless idols of old, that God's power and his greatness are infinite. And even though we are not tempted to worship physical images and statues of that nature, but when you talk about being greedy, then, then money and wealth can become our idol, and we have to be careful not to let that come into our lives. The fourth lesson I want to share with you, as we continue to see in Isaiah chapter 40, God's greatness is shown in comparison to any of the kings or the rulers of the earth. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 22 with me. It says that it is he who, in answering the questions about, don't you know uh, how powerful God is, it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them, spreads them out like a tent to dwell. And so again, it's showing God's power. He's enthroned above the vault of the earth. All of the inhabitants of the earth, that's like you and me, 
And kings and queens are like grasshoppers in comparison to God. We're nothing. And then in verse 23, it says, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely they have been planted, scarcely they have been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. Now again, where are the great rulers of the world today? Where are the great pharaohs? Where are the great Roman Caesars? Where is King Nebuchadnezzar? Where is King Tut? They're dead, they're gone, they're almost forgotten. They've all died and perished from this life, and yet verse 25 again says emphatically that there's no one like God. No one, not even the kings of the earth compared to God. And that's, again, verse 25 is a summation of the theme of this chapter. To whom then, Isaiah says, will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Not even the kings of the earth are powerful. I think about what happened in Iraq not that long ago. And Saddam Hussein was finally captured. The soldiers found him. But where did they find him? The king, the powerful king. He was in a hole in the ground. God doesn't get in holes in the ground like that. And then he's finally executed because of his sins and his mistreatment towards humanity. But God is infinitely wiser than and greater than and more powerful than any earthly king and all kings combined. Well, as you look at these lessons, that, uh, that shows us the four main points that illustrate God's incomparable greatness. One other point I want to talk about this morning, then, of a practical nature on the remaining part of the chapter is to understand that God alone offers us the greatest assurance and care possible for his people. And that's what Isaiah is trying to communicate to God's people in this chapter. And so in verse 26 of Isaiah chapter 40, again, God is speaking to Isaiah and he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who, crea- who has created these stars, the one who leads, uh, leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, we just take this for granted, brethren, but when you look up into the, into the sky in this, at, at night, you see all the stars, we have to be reminded that God put them all there. He created the stars. It says in connection with that, that he leads them forth by number. In fact, I saw in a football game the other night a folly star. It was pretty impressive just now with a game. And but if you ever watch the movement of stars in, in the sky, God leads forth these stars by number. He calls them, and then one star moves, and then another one moves, he, and he commands them, and they follow his, his command. And in addition to that, it says that he calls them all by name. Do you know how many stars there are up in the sky? Does anybody know? I don't think you know, do you? God knows the name of every star in the heavens. And, and, and he protects them. It says not one of them is missing because of the, the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. What he's saying to us, brethren, at his point, that God is going to take care of us. If God cares that much about a ball of dirt up in the sky, how much more does he care about you and me? He cares about us immensely, that sometimes we don't appreciate that or, or maybe don't believe that. Again, let's continue reading through the rest of this chapter. In verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, has not become weary or tired. 
His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. What a powerful picture. What an encouraging picture for the strength that God offers us. God doesn't get tired. I have to tell you, brethren. I was saying this to one of my friends here today. After preaching for eight years at Broadmoor and, and working, I get tired. I get run down. I need a break. I need to get re, 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 replenished and refreshed. God doesn't get tired. Never. So if I get tired, guess who I'm going to turn to? To God, my Father in heaven. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is inscrutable. I need help in making good choices in life, right? If I call friends and about making business decisions, God's understanding is beyond comprehension. So if you need help in making decisions about your family, your children, and worship, and your job, and, and things of that nature, go to the one who has all understanding. And he, he'll share that with all of us. And he'll restore our strength. And the lesson there, especially to Judah, is that if Judah would wait on the Lord and patiently trust him, then he would, then God would deliver them from captivity and restore them to their land. And so there, again, is the lesson that Isaiah is teaching us from, from chapter 40, that God offers us the greatest assurance and care possible. Well, let's just wrap up this lesson this morning. I don't normally speak of it on a, a lengthy section like that. But this chapter is such a powerful chapter to contemplate because it is showing us that God is great beyond all comparison. And that's a singular thought that needs to dominate my thinking and your thinking every day of our lives. And so what lessons do we learn, I think, from Isaiah chapter 40? One, God knows your needs intimately. He knows the stars. He can count how many specks of dust there are on the face of the earth. He knows what you're going through in your life. And he knows what I'm going through in my life. So he knows your needs intimately. He cares about you deeply. If he cares about the stars and he cares about the fish in the sea, if he cares about the oceans and all that stuff, surely he cares about you because of that song we sang this morning. I love it. Praise the Lord. I am his child. I belong to the king of kings. And if he cares about his creation, things that perish so quickly, surely he's going to care about me. Thirdly, I want to suggest another lesson that Isaiah teaches us is that God will provide for your every need. Do you believe that? I believe it, but sometimes I doubt it. But God will provide for every need that you have in your life and every need that I have. I just have to trust him, and that's the, that's the challenge. Number four, again, this reminds us that his being, his character is in bond. When God says he's going to forgive us of our sins and we take the Lord's Supper every week, I'm reminded that God justifies me on the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ. And he is going to uh, execute all of his promises. And then number five, what we should learn is that we have no reason to live with worry and doubt. And how many of us live with worry and doubt? Because we don't see our incomparably great God in heaven who cares for all of his creation and he cares especially for us. And so... The natural question is, what is our response to a God of such incomparable greatness? How should we respond to, to our, our great and holy God? Number one, we should love him with all of our heart. That's the first response. Secondly, we should, we should trust him completely, and we should obey his word without question. And yet, 
sometimes we don't do that, do we? We worry, we doubt, and we say, I'm just not going to do it this way. But because God is so great, so powerful beyond all comprehension, we should love Him, trust Him, and obey Him without question. That's my challenge to life. And as long as I live, I'm going to try to do that. That's what Isaiah is teaching us. Well, as we extend the invitation this morning, we raise the question, how do we become, or how do you become a servant of such a great and holy God? It's not that difficult. You need to believe His Word and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Trust Him with all of your heart. You need to be willing to repent of your sins. You must be willing to openly profess your faith in Him. Number four, you need to be willing to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't done these things, you need to do them. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be part of God's family, be His child. And then we all need to serve our great God with great faithfulness as long as this life shall last. It may be that you've never obeyed the gospel. Maybe that you've been thinking about it for a long time and been putting it off and making all kinds of excuses why you're not going to do that. But we serve a great and holy God. He's going to deliver all the promises that he has given to us in Scripture. Our job is to trust him and to obey his will. If you refuse to obey his will, it will be for your eternal ruin. And God is waiting for you to obey his will, to become a Christian, to yield your life to him completely. It may be that you've done that. Maybe you've walked away from your faith. We all stumble from time to time. But maybe you've just turned your back on God. Maybe you've gone back into the world. Maybe you want to just, you need to reconnect with God's family. Our God is great. In the picture that you see in Isaiah chapter 40, he's going to care for us and nurture us as, as a, a, a little you lamb. And so whatever you need is this morning. If you need to respond to the gospel anyway, we invite you to come forward while we're standing and sing this invitation song.